DiscerningHearts.com presents Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. Deacon Gutierrez studied theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville and at the Angelicum in Rome. He holds a master's degree in theology from the University of Dallas. He has worked for the church in various capacities, including as a teacher and administrator, and is currently on the faculty of the School of Faith. His expertise includes Catholic social teaching, and his writings on the subject have appeared in several national Catholic newspapers and periodicals. He's the author of The Urging of Christ's Love, The Saints, and The Social Teaching of the Catholic Church. Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Omar. Hi, Chris. Good to be back. We're discussing Chapter 3 of the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church. Section D of that particular chapter, we talk about the value of the human dignity owed each person because they've been created in the image of God. Unfortunately, that's not a universal principle accepted by many. For example, those beautiful, beautiful children who are detected in their mother's womb with a condition we have termed as Down syndrome. 90% of those children detected in the womb of their mother are aborted. This is, a, I think, one of those gut-check kinds of questions that everybody who claims to love social justice and social teaching administration needs to ask themselves, especially you know, when, when looking at questions of public policy and those sorts of things. Can we ever truly achieve a society of compassion wherein the poor are provided with the appropriate and necessary welfare help that they need and require? that is concomitant with their need and and also respectful of their dignity? Can we have that kind of truly loving and compassionate society so long as, at the same time as, we say it's okay for us to wipe off the face of the planet uh, people born with Down syndrome? How, How does one live in a society that says that those two ideas are in any way, shape, or form compatible with each other? Those children who grow up to be such beautiful, beautiful adults have some of the kindest, most gentle, most nurturing hearts. And yet we somehow have determined they are not worthy of life. Right. We've come to that conclusion, sadly, because of yet another lie. We talked earlier about that dignity in the human person being there by virtue of the fact that we are. Our culture, and I think this is something that's this uh, sort of rooted in, in our human natures, sadly, but our culture believes that our value is based on what we can do, on our function, or on what we have, or on how we look, but it's, it's not based on, our, on what we are. And we see it played out, it's horribly played out here with regard to abortion, and, and specifically with abortion of children with, who have with disabilities. The society gets this way when it begins to divorce the dignity of the human person from what the human person is. Sadly, our society emphasizes this notion that dignity comes from function, comes from what you can or cannot do. Mm-hmm. When we look at the abortion debate, for instance, more broadly, apart from this horrible aspect of 
uh, aborting children with Down syndrome. But when we look at the abortion question in general, what's the argument from the the pro-choice side, the pro-abortion side? The argument is this thing, this thing inside the woman's womb is not a human person because it can't do certain things. It can't live by itself. It's not viable, which is just a, a, a kind of doing. Uh, scientifically, we know what it is. We know it's a member of the species Homo sapiens. We know it has human DNA. We know that if left alone, it would develop into a full, fully functioning human being. We, we know what it is. That's not the question. The question is, what can it do? And so uh, we've eliminated then, we've divorced this notion that dignity is, should be part of what, one is, what something is instead of what something can do or what someone can do. And we see it expressed in so many different aspects of our culture. Between men and women, for instance, the argument for many years was women are equal to men because they can do the same things men can do. Well, no. Women are equal to men because they are equal to men, not because of what they can do or can't do. And when we see that play out in so many different ways in our society, in the way women are treated, in the way women who stay home are treated, for instance, we see that played out in so many different ways. And that's a cancer in our society that that we have to begin to address and root out. Could you make the case as well that there are societies and cultures around the world that we may look at how they treat women, for mm, example, right. and we will see the women are not allowed to vote, they're not allowed to go to school, they have no decision as far as the, the marriage opportunities they have. We look at how they're treated and we say, that's a barbaric culture. Those women are not valued for who they are. But those in that society, they accept that as normative. Yeah, exactly. Could that be said to us in the United States on the way that we look at the dignity of those, those precious lives within the womb or in other aspects in which we now say it's, it's morally acceptable, but really it is, for the Christian, barbaric. Oh, yes. No, I think that's true. I, I think that starkness of it is, is true. Um, this is one of the reasons why the misuse of conscience had already started in the 19th century. John Henry Cullen Newman or I had already started talking about it, actually, mm -hmm. back then. This notion that my conscience tells me something is true and so it must be true. There's the famous quote from Jane Fonda, right? How can mm -hmm. I be wrong when I believe it so sincerely? <laughs> sincerity does not equal veracity. And the, the Muslim in an Islamic country who does not believe a woman should be educated, she has no rights whatsoever, that indeed she can be killed in horrific ways publicly for speaking to somebody who's a, a male and not a member of her family out in public. We look at that, and rightly so, our consciences are, are pricked, and our conscience tells us that is seriously wrong. And yet, they live in that society. They grew up in that society. Their consciences were formed by their religion, by their state and Sharia law, by their parents, by their culture, all of which are telling them this is truth. This is mm -hmm. right. Now, theologians will talk about, well, at some point in time, your, your conscience has to be have connected to the natural law, and you should realize that this is wrong. And that's true. But when your conscience is so malformed, uh, how can one expect them to believe something differently, necessarily? Particularly when that judgment call favors the strong. Right. Yes, exactly. Which is why you know, we said earlier about the, I think actually when we were talking about at the beginning of this chapter, and when we quoted the, the founding fathers of this nation about self-evident truths that we're all men are created equal and endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights, that's not self-evident. It's not self-evident, and it's not the case everywhere. And so 
this question of the equal dignity of all people is something we have to seriously, directly work for and keep at the forefront of our minds because it is so easy to favor the strong and those we can see. And so in our society, we have what is a truly horrific and barbaric practice. Even, you know, the partial birth abortion, which which is bar- barbarism, and, and one may not show pictures of it on primetime television, and yet it's legal, mm-hmm. and yet it's legal. So this line from the compendium, paragraph 148, persons with disabilities are fully human subjects with rights and duties. The rights of persons with disabilities need to be promoted with effective and appropriate measures. That's a positive goal and end for the social teaching of the church. Uh, oddly enough, for some reason, our society that claims to, I'm talking about America in particular, that claims to love children so much, it's very difficult for us to confront those who are born with with disabilities. Talking about the need for a cultural change on this point, we do need to say that political parties, uh, neither the Democrat or the Republican Party per se in the United States, lifted up a truly authentic Catholic position on this matter. Mm. Sadly, because our society is so dedicated, I think, to to abortion, I'm going to just come out and say it, it was sad to see that even on the, the, the pro-life side, oftentimes there's an exception with regard to banning abortion for, the, the, for, for situations where the conception came from rape or incest. And uh, in those cases, too, again, somehow we have very intelligent people arguing that it's okay, it's okay to kill off these human beings. And if we recognize it's wrong in other situations, it's, they're not, not human beings because of how they were conceived. Somehow it's okay here because of the way they were conceived, and that dignity somehow is, is lost to them forever. I think we need to take that question, the very least, into our prayer lives, because mm-hmm. the perpetrator of the violent act, which would lead to the conception of this human person, mm-hmm. would not be put to death in this country. Right. Because that would be too barbaric. That's an excellent point. So how is it that the child who was conceived becomes a victim and one of a more heinous persecution than by the abortion that would occur because of that? Right. These questions of the equal dignity of the human person and our failure to recognize that translate into public policies, translate into laws translating to cultural norms and culturally accepted practices that the social doctrine of the church is attempting to try to get us to see that there's, there's a linkage between these things. You know, after they talk about the equal dignity of the, the human person, the, the church starts talking about the compendium, this chapter three, talks about the social nature of human beings. Mm-hmm. And they do so precisely because they, you need, one needs to recognize that because we are social persons, the way we look at this dignity of the human person translates or affects the way we live out in society, the way we treat human beings in society. Paragraph 150, the compendium says, the social nature of human beings does not automatically lead to communion among persons, to the gift of self. Mm-hmm. Right? That's that sin we were talking about before. We have a social nature, but we need a social nature that recognizes this dignity because we're not going to necessarily do so. It's not self-evident. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not going to simply come about. We have to work hard to try to build up this communion in society that recognizes the dignity of the unborn child 
regardless of how they were conceived, regardless of disability, and recognize the dignity of the, the human person so that we can stop right, the basically pornographic television shows and, and the licentious behavior that has existed and portrayed in them. Another aspect of this as well is how we speak about particular ethnic groups. Yes. Each person, individual person, is worth their due Mm -hmm. and should not be detrimentally categorized because of race or ethnicity. Yes, no, it's true. Um, And and this cuts uh, both ways a lot. I mean, there was one of the great things about the movement for civil rights in this country in the 1960s with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was that, A, it was a religious movement. uh, So that's a point for religion, I think. The larger vision for Reverend King, which was that we would have a society that no longer looked at color, that no longer looked at ethnicity, that simply appreciated the, the worth of the other person for who they were by the content of their character, said Dr. King. And for some reason, we've gotten away from that. We want to look at color. We, we have standards that insist on looking at color. We no longer are allowed to talk about content of character. You can't talk about virtue. You can only talk about generally in values. The way we talk and approach these issues that are social issues rooted in the, the equal dignity of the human person, they have as you can probably already imagine, uh, ramifications in our public policies and therefore in the laws that help form conferences and that try to bring about a kind of social justice. There was a time in the United States history where the church had to be a voice and stood up even when it was a minority religion in the country, which it is not now, Right, but did so, spoke out to help the Italian immigrant who came over and could not speak English for the waves of Germans that came over and could not speak English Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and for the Irish, so poor because of what was occurring in their own country politically and economically, Mm -hmm. came to refuge here. They were treated, they were discriminated against, they were frowned upon, they were exploited. The church had to speak out for their dignity. Yeah, yeah. That's what the church has been doing for so long in our nation, really all over the world, for so long and standing up for those. And they've appealed to the sense of justice, what is due to the individual, because of the church's dedication to the full good of the human person. Gaudium et Spes, that wonderful document from Vatican II, talks about how the joys and hopes would also the the trials and tribulations of the of the individual person and of societies is part of what the church cares about. It is what the church concerned with. And so the church addresses these things because it's, it's the nature of who she is. And she does them and talks about justice because the justice is that virtue that tells us what is due to the individual and due for not just fulfilling a particular pleasure, but what's due me, D-U-E me, What's due me so that I can be more fully myself, so I can be fully a human being. We'll return to Regnum Novum with Omar Gutierrez in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, 
the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Regnum Novum with Omar Gutierrez. You know, and I brought up those examples of what occurred, particularly in that wave of the late 1800s into the early 1900s in the United States, Mm -hmm. to bring forward the point of what is occurring today. Yeah, with the tremendous uh, growth and the wonderful riches that is being brought into the melting pot by our Latino brothers and sisters. Yes, and the church has been at the forefront of trying to to expand our national conscience, <laughs> uh, inform our national conscience on, on the issue of Latino immigration in particular. And if there were ever a reason why we need to see the dignity of these of these these folks, it's it's certainly now. In the midst of a time, you know, after September eleventh, where we were rightly concerned with our security, I think we've allowed our fears to get before us and to ignore our obligations towards our neighbors. Understandably, we've talked about immigration before, but understandably, one has to be very careful about creating a a social safety net that could burden the country and end up sending the country into bankruptcy, which helps nobody, and burdens future generations, and, and the church condemns that. But when we have a society that as wealthy as ours, we spent something like $40 billion on pets last year as a nation, and and billions of dollars in pornography as a nation, and, and on and on and on. It becomes difficult then for the Latino who lives in a village with very little work and who eats corn uh, every day for every meal, if they eat at all, to see a society like ours and hear, we can't afford to have you come in. Um, we can't afford to help you. We can't afford to pay your medical bills. We can't afford to do this or that, the other thing. It's difficult for me to see how that argument could work when we have people driving around in remarkably expensive cars. Alexa de Tocqueville, who was a Frenchman philosopher, who 
came over from France after experiencing a cultural change and an attempt to have a government the sa- wave the same banner as the United States, liberty, fraternity, mm-hmm. and it would grow into the terror. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't need to get into the atrocities of what happened. The, the violation of human dignity is well documented yes. during that time. But he came over to the United States and said, okay, what did you do that was so different? Right. Why did it succeed here? And what he found was that we had a moral underpinning, a discipline where democracy ran amok in France. Mm-hmm. In the United States, it was because they had this, this discipline of once mm-hmm. a week going and hearing a message that said, you need to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, help the poor, mm-hmm. visit mm-hmm. the imprisoned, welcome the stranger. Mm-hmm. That there was this discipline that kept it in check. This, this moral underpinning. Yeah. And, and I think part of the genius of our, the founding of this nation, and it's actually, we, we can touch on this last section here in this chapter to sort of explain this. Part of the genius of this nation was understanding that notion that that moral underpinning, that there was something to the nature of the human person that was due certain things from the state. Whereas in the past, the, the ideas of human rights never existed. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an invention, really. The notion of a right is an invention of the 19th century, and late, maybe late 18th, but the 19th century. And it was a response to this question of where does justice lie? Where does, where does something that's due truly lie? Do I have, am I due, for instance, parented over my children because the state says I do? Or because it's within my very nature as a father and my relationship with my children that I have that do me? The answer, of course, is the latter. It's my nature. So it's not something that's due from outside as though the state can give it to me or the state can't give it to me. It's something interior to me. It's something that's true by virtue of what I am which is, takes us back to the beginning, mm-hmm. that's what we mean when we say we have a right. A right suggests that there's something about what I am that requires activity or, or acknowledgement on the part of others, and the state in particular. And our nation was founded on this notion that the state exists to serve us. The state exists to help serve and make sure that things that are due us as individuals, as societies, as groups, are met. And that sense of this kind of a sense of humility in the face of the rights endowed by the Creator, a humble state that exists to try to serve the individual, to allow them to realize their own rights and, and protect those rights, was, I think, part of what was so wonderful about our founding and what really made a difference between our revolution, really, and the French Revolution, where in the French Revolution, the argument was more about the death of the other, about power and wrenching power from the other instead of serving the truth of who the human person is. Omar, what is the Catholic to do in the United States when these moral concerns as a whole of what Catholic social teaching is putting forward, i.e. then therefore the church is putting Mm -hmm. forward, doesn't seem to be served fully by either political party? Yeah. 
it's been said before that the Catholics in America certainly find themselves um, politically homeless. And I think there's a truth to that. You know, in years past, the popes and bishops have, have encouraged, and I'm thinking particularly of church in Italy during the 1920s and 30s and the rise of Mussolini and, and fascism there, as well as the church in Germany. Under Eugenio Pacelli, who became Pope Pius Twelfth and his leadership, the church has encouraged Catholics who don't have a political home and imagine yourself in Nazi Germany in the 1930s and late 1920s. <clears throat> or today in China. Or today in China, exactly. Uh, where one would find oneself. The church has always encouraged a thing just called Catholic action. Catholics can get together, right? And while we might not have a political machine or, or a great deal of high-powered political influence, Catholics can still talk to one another, invite them to each other's homes, educate, form conscience, discuss the questions that are meaningful to them in their lives, that can all still happen. And that's all part of Catholic action. We don't call it that anymore. And sadly, a lot of that doesn't happen very much. But I think that's going to be part of the future for the Catholic Church uh, here and in other parts of the world to get back to those earlier manifestations of, of the way Catholics live their lives in the world when they found themselves politically homeless. That is not a hopeless situation at at all. all. Not at all. Because it grounds itself to a healthy, burgeoning, systemically growing type of enculturation from the bottom up. Exactly, yes. Where the roots are solid. Exactly right. It's it's organic. It's, it's, um, It's relational. It recognizes the dignity of the other person because you're face-to-face with them. You're not uh, playing off necessarily ideologies. You're dealing with people, and you're helping transform hearts. You're helping to convert instead of compel. That's what Catholic action looks like, and that's what we need. I think we need more of that. So then when we talk about these rights at the end of this chapter, chapter 3, the the bishops and the churches always talk about rights, but they always couple rights with, with responsibilities, with duties. Rights and duties, rights and responsibilities. And I think we, lay Catholics in particular, Okay, I'm talking to the lady in particular, and we're always so fond of criticizing our bishops and priests. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but it's our responsibility, my fellow lay people, our responsibility to take up Catholic action, our duty to take up Catholic action and start doing the formation and the change of hearts from within. Until we do that, I don't think we'll ever be able to have the kind of political home or influential Catholic vote, they talk about a Catholic vote, uh, again. I think we need to do that basic Catholic action. The sadness would be to succumb to fear. Yes. To be not afraid, to stand where he has placed you and stand. Yeah, yeah. Strongly, firmly, and open up the heart yeah. so that he can shine. If Imagine if Catholics throughout the United States as well as throughout the world did that Darkness is drawn to light. Yeah. This is the time for the stars to shine and to trust that he will take care of it. Yeah, that's right. Just yeah. stand where you're at in truth and in love. So, yeah, the, the conversations one has with coworkers, the conversations one has with the spouse, with friends, I think we need to think about maybe somebody we disagree with and inviting them over for dinner. Sitting down with them and, and speaking with them, and even if it's somebody we think you know we need to form in the Catholic faith, maybe it's somebody we don't disagree with, we just want to get to know them better. That formation needs to happen, and it needs to happen soon, and what better way than to, to break bread with somebody, to invite them over to an event, to get to know them, so that we can start building the society at the ground level and doing the organic change that needs to happen. 
part of our reluctance in doing that is precisely because of fear. Of course. We're yeah. afraid we're not going to be able to answer a question about the faith or being able to deal with the hurt because of the behavior of someone they encountered previously in, in, in a relationship in the church. Sure. No, I, I know that's that's why, because I, I know those are the things that go through my mind as I think about these things. But with regard to the pain, that you know, the, the Lord said there's going to be pain. It's in that embracing that pain that we, we grow closer to him and we are able to, to appreciate the kind of pain he had on the cross. It's going to deepen your spiritual life when that happens. And with regard to the fear, there ought not be any room for fear. But remember, love is not a, a test. It's not a quiz. Love is not a, a conglomeration of facts. Uh, I'm not asking anybody to, to do anything they're not comfortable with, but formation is much more than just knowing the right doctrine, <laughs> right, and, and knowing which paragraph of the catechism to lead them to. It's an invitation to a relationship. So you don't know. So they challenge you on something. So there's a, a, a tense moment. It's in those moments that we have to challenge ourselves to go deeper and say, okay, well, let's find the truth together. Let's look at the catechism. Let's look at, at our faith. And if they reject that, they reject that. And then you know where you stand. You know you're dealing with somebody who's not interested in, in, in what the church really teaches. It seems to me as though the church is calling us to be more evangelizers. Yes, I like that. And because we, we have so many that we know who have gone through baptism, they received their communion, they got confirmed, they mm-hmm. may even gotten married, and then boom, they're out. And then boom, they're out, yeah. The, we the, sacramentalized the figures, them, yeah. yeah, but we didn't evangelize the them. The figures through RCIA, we, we have so many people coming. And I think the figure is something like the, the number of Catholics that come into the church every year in the United States, uh, if you put them all in their own denomination, it'd be the eighth largest denomination in the United States. I mean, it's a huge number of people, mm-hmm. but the, within, within a year, a third of them are gone. Within five years, half of them are gone. We're not evangelizing, uh, and we need to build those relationships. And unless we start to do that, uh, we can't hope to be able to find the political home or social home that we know we want to have. Omar, thank you so much. My pleasure. You've been listening to Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez.